real hard. <laughs> Swimming by R.E.M., Michael Stipe, of course, on breathy, raspy, kind of whiny lead vocals. What's that song about? Well, the lyrics. It's about night swimming. Getting caught. <laughs> you're not getting caught. You know, it's about the end of summer. Because you're swimming naked? Swimming naked, yeah. Now we're in September. You <laughs> mean naked. Summer's coming to a close, and... I thought that was appropriate. That song is actually produced and arranged by uh, John Paul Jones, the bass player from Led Zeppelin. In my opinion, the finest piece of music he ever did, because you can pretty much take anything else Led Zeppelin did and just throw it off the cliff as far as I'm concerned. I'm not a Led Zeppelin, one of the Led Zeppelin uh, sycophants. Mike Jackman just alienating every Led Zeppelin fan that listens to Jackman Radio. And uh, yeah, any, any anyone who's a music fan usually loves Led Zeppelin. So we're hitting a milestone tonight, guys. This is episode number 20. Look at us. Yeah. 20 episodes deep. No one gives a shit. Not even us. <laughs> what a ride it's been. You know? In a lot of ways, we're just getting started, aren't we, Oswald? Mm. And tonight's episode is brought to you by Corona Extra. <clears throat> That's been the summer drink of choice, man. Let me tell you, the last two months just been a complete Corona haze. Should have been called the Corona Diaries. It's the Corona Diaries. All Corona all the time, La Harvey. I like a good Corona. I, I never, I, you know, I poo-pooed it and swore it off for most of my adult life, my you, drinking life. You know what it is that got you in the Coronas, dude, was freaking Dominic from <clears throat> Fast and the Furious. Dom, what Dom, yeah, sorry. What, what kind of beer do you want? <laughs> you can have anything as long as it's Corona. <sighs> Absolutely, so it was Dominic Toretto. Toretto. That got me into Corona. So, you know, we took a two-week hiatus. We've been busy, but, you know, yeah. Oswald's been on the road. We, you know, we've had political events to go to, and a great one that we went to uh, a week, about a week and a half, two weeks ago, Lindsey Graham. Eric, tell oh. us about Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham, everyone's favorite neocon from South Carolina in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Big-time war hawk, you know, loves, loves the defense establishment. Definitely a poster boy for war and more war, and then even more war on top of that. So even a double, like the cherry on top is more war. Yeah, it's, an, it's another side conflict that, that can kill We're like, going to send your grandkids. This thing's going to go on so long, your grandkids are going to go over there. 10,000 people. wouldn't be that bad. Right. <clears throat> but the thing, so Lindsey Graham was in Hancock, New Hampshire, doing a town hall um, at the 
Hancock Town Hall. And uh, God, I was so surprised uh, how much I actually liked the guy personally at the end of it. And um, I got a nice picture with him and then we filmed a little promo for Jackman Radio um, called the Lindsey Graham Crackers, which is all the rage. It blew up the internet more than Kim Kardashian's butt cheeks. And you can see that on our Jackman Radio Facebook page. And if you haven't liked us yet, please do. Yeah, like us and then go on Twitter if you're on Twitter and go to at Jackman Radio and click follow and I will follow you back and send you a really nice tweet. It's all good stuff. No, he was great. You know, the media would have you believe he's like some crazy, you know, He's not crazy. I mean, I can understand his propensity towards the, the military establishment and the defense because down in his neck of the woods you got Boeing... Lockheed Martin, I mean, all those are all your big... And he was in the military up until, what, last year? Yeah, he made it to colonel, I think, in the Air Force. And, yeah, so he had um, a long military career. I have to say, I personally, like, really enjoyed Lindsey Graham. I don't agree with really much of his politics, <clears throat> but he is going to... He's using the John McCain playbook here in New Hampshire, and we'll see how that goes. He's going to have McCain coming up again to do events, and that's going to draw a lot of people, but ultimately, will that resonate into votes? I don't think so. A recent poll had him at 0.01%, just to give you an idea. So, before we move on to another political topic, I have to start and uh, start by dedicating tonight's show to Wes Craven. Wes Craven, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, and that's up for debate, horror directors of all time, um, scared anyone, you know, between the age of... 18 and 50 with classics like Nightmare on Elm Street, People Under the Stairs, Serpent in the Rainbow, Scream. I mean, the list goes on. Last and House on the Left. Last House on the Left, uh, which was one of his very early films along with The Hills Have Eyes. And uh, yeah, he passed away over the weekend from uh, brain cancer at the age of 76. So uh, tonight's episode is dedicated to Wes Craven. I'll see you in my nightmares. Did he party? I don't know. Because he had a real religious upbringing, right? I think so. I think there was there was kind of a a uh, upbringing that uh, you know didn't allow for a lot of creativity, or and he used his imagination. And the whole basis for Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger um, is based on a childhood. It's an amalgamation of a childhood bully and someone he saw on the street, a creepy guy that he saw on the street outside of his house that he locked eyes with while looking out the window, wearing a Christmas-colored sweater. And it was the janitor at his high school. Could have been. Yeah, but Wes Craven. I mean, he was ta- talk about you know the 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 house that uh, New Line Cinema built. You know, Freddy Krueger. I mean, didn't he it, do Wishmaster too? Yeah, I think he produced it. I okay. think he put his name on. His it name more. was on there somewhere. There were a couple of duds. We have to acknowledge the duds. Cursed in two thousand five, the werewolf movie with uh, Joshua Jackson, Jesse Eisenberg. Not really a good movie. <clears throat> My Soul to Take from two thousand ten, uh, his last film before directing Scream Four in two thousand eleven. Not that good, but he had, you know, he probably had 95, 90 to 95%. Success rate. Just just awesome horror f- films. So poor one out for Wes Craven. So for Wes Craven. So I, uh, I encourage anyone to go out there and check out the original Nightmare on Elm Street and so, tell me that's not one of the scariest Aaron, movies you've dude, seen. Dude, I wanted to talk to you about Dismaland, Banksy's new installment. Mm. Dude, have you seen that? Yeah, I was looking at the pictures, I think, last week he he, he uh, unveiled it and it's just fucking badass. Yeah, it opened uh, the weekend of August 21st. Yeah. So, now where is this? What? No. I think it's in uh, the UK somewhere. Yeah, Dismaland is a temporary art project organized by Banksy constructed in the seaside resort town of Weston-Super-Mar in Somerset, England. 
So yeah, it's over in England. Right. Now you go into this installation, it does not evoke nice feelings. No, no. Oh, dude, it's like a it's like a really, nightmare. It's a bad acid trip version of Disneyland, yeah. and that's what Disneyland is, anyways. And I watched that that uh, movie, Aaron, that you put on our computer. Exit through the gift shop. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, no, no, well, yeah, that. But I'm talking about the nightmarish Disneyland movie. Oh, the Disneyland movie where the guy Escape from Tomorrowland or something. Oh yeah, Escape um, from Tomorrow. Escape dude, from Tomorrow. Banksy yeah, that's had, a great movie. He had movie. to have watched that movie. Yeah, well, Banksy's kind of been obsessed with Disneyland for a while because if you watch uh, in in Exit Through the Gift Shop, he actually goes to Disneyland um, with a guy, with this guy that's uh, making the documentary, and he he puts up a few installations in Disneyland. He has a uh, he had he had a big blow up um, doll that looked like one of the Guantanamo Bay prisoners oh, so with good. like the you know orange the suit and like and the black mask the and then he would he would he place them like at the bottom of like roller coasters and stuff like that really? so as you're coming around the hill you just see this guy handcuffed to like the fence like this Guantanamo Bay prisoner and uh, in the in exit through the gift shop yeah, they actually kind of get busted Banksy gets away but the, the guy who's filming him gets busted and they Disneyland tries to confiscate his cameras and all this shit um so, so he, yeah he's he's been into disneyland for a while yeah i mean what i'm taking away from this man and i love it is a complete dig on on disney yeah and the, com- the disney myth and lie. commercialization of children's youth and childhoods mm. you're taking you know you're not even let, letting kids have their own imaginations anymore you know and this is not a new thing. I mean, you know, Disney has been... How long has that racket been going, Mike? Like, Probably 60s, 50s, And what 60s. did you say? Well, Disney was started by, by what kind Who, Mike? By some anti-Semitic asshole who's been in the grave for 55 years. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Disney sucks. Sorry, is that true? If you're listening, don't go to Disney. Don't bring your kids there. That, pla- that place is disgusting. Show them Never-Ending Story. Yeah. Which is a great German Make film. Make them read Clive Barker, you know? Okay, not Clive Barker. Yeah, that's kind of... Yeah, you want their imaginations <laughs> to be... Their interest to be piqued. But I don't know. Did you go to Disney as a kid, Aaron? Mm. Did your parents drag you I've down there? I've never been, no. Oh, I don't dude, think I would want to go at this point. We went in the third grade. We did go. I'm not against Disney. I just hate amusement parks at this point. Yeah, it's... It's uh, obnoxious. The whole, the waiting is, in line. The whole thing's disgusting. You know? You know, it's a bunch of bullshit. You know, I, I, I don't know. If I had kids and a wife and the whole family, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't cave into that. You might come up to some resistance if you decided not so to. So what, that. man? What a giant waste of money. Have you ever met anyone who comes back from Disney like happy? So that was a great investment. Yeah, that was incredible. Have the I'm memories. So glad I spent that six grand that I worked three years for. The kids whined in the car and asked if we were there yet for three incessant days, and we drove each other crazy. But it was fun. Yeah, I was sweating the whole time and miserable, and then I got a ball rash. You know. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> but, one of the um, commentaries that Banksy's doing is, is on immigration and uh, the way illegal immigrants are treated. And is that part of it? I think like yeah, it's uh, a small... there's a bunch of different. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. What else are they? One of one of his well, pieces is the uh, is got the the pumpkin uh, who was a Cinderella and her pumpkin. Uh, oh, it's her like carriage it's turned so, over. Her carriage is turned over and there's paparazzi all taking pictures of the death scene and wow, it's just like awesome. brilliant that stuff. That is brilliant. Yeah, a large pinwheel, a metal galloping horse, and a twisted truck sculpture, big rig jig by Mike Ross. Who had his work shown at Burning Man? That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, he's he's, he, Burning, he's he, collaborating with a lot of yeah, artists. Yeah, dude, there's like. A, which I think is a first for him. I don't think he's like really done fi- that. Works by 58 artists, it yes. says. Scott Hove is in there. He yeah. does some really great stuff. A whole bunch of people. Yeah, right. Andreas Heike, um, James Joyce, Jimmy Cowdy, Dorcas Casey, Block Nine. Uh, Tame and Azam. Now it's free, right? There's no, there's no uh, charge to go yeah, in. Yeah, the, the deal with sure. it is, it says uh, it's uh, it's going to run till September 27th for 36 days, 
and 4,000 tickets available per purchase per day. Ah, I think you okay. have to go through That's the smart. website. And it's been crashing the website. Yeah. People trying to get tickets. Through his website, and probably? I, and I think that that is even a ploy smart. to play on how when people try to right, go to the right. real Disney, right. how there's like a crash. So everything is like a like a nuanced, you know, double meaning. Well, he's you know, just really smart the way he kind of goads people into doing things. And is when Banksy he, when he, one person or is it a collective? Well, collective. that's kind of a that's kind of that's part gotta of be the a collective. Conspiracy. There could be one. It's like a brain trust. There could be one main. He's like the jigsaw person. Right. I mean, yeah. he definitely has a team that helps him set uh, up. But yeah, I, dude, get I'd this. L- the, I like uh, to think it's one guy coming up with the ideas. Yeah. The local residents uh, over there were told that a Hollywood company called Atlas Entertainment was using the location to film a crime thriller called Gray Fox. Signs proclaiming Gray Fox Productions were posted around entrances to the site. And uh, pictures came up in early August of a fairy castle and massive super sculptures. And uh, Holly Cushing, whose name appeared in the credits of a documentary about Banksy and who is often reported to be his manager, was cited at the construction site before the opening. So it was a big cover to just kind of like yeah, they, scope they, out this place? Right. They made up a whole myth that they were filming a Hollywood movie there. That's great. And really they were creating a friggin' epic He knows how Banksy to kind of stay under the radar. But literally in front of everybody. Like, yeah, right. Just that, until making the rollout. When Banksy took New York, I mean, that's so epic. Dude. One of my favorite Banksy quotes is in his book where... Uh, you know, it's about his, you know, all his graffiti pieces. And he says, if you ever if you ever want to be invisible in public, just wear one of those bright yellow construction vests. <laughs> because true. everyone was, just ignores you. It probably was. Yeah. Well, that's great stuff. We'll have some other topics, but we do have an epic interview we're going to conduct tonight with a journalist, an investigative reporter, an author named Russ Baker. And we're going to do an introduction for him and get him on the line here in just a few minutes. So we'll be right back with more Jackman Radio. Welcome back to Jackman Radio. I am very excited for our guest tonight. We are joined by Russ Baker. Russ Baker is an investigative journalist and author. He has written for many publications, including The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, The New York Times, The Nation, The LA Times, and The Washington Post, The Village Voice, Esquire, Slate, Salon, and has served as a contributing editor to the Columbia Journalism Review. His 2009 book, Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, The Powerful Forces That Put It in the White House, and What Their Influence Means for America, has been hailed for its groundbreaking research and explosive information about the Bush family and their numerous connections and tentacles around the world. He is the founder and editor-in-chief of the news website whowhatwhy.org, 
a nonprofit journalism organization whose stated goal is to uncover and report information about current events that is unavailable from the mainstream media, yet is crucial to a well-informed citizenry in a democracy. Democracy. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Baker. My pleasure. How's it going? Good, good. So uh, kind of getting right into it here, um, you know, during your two decade plus career, you've interviewed some pretty interesting and notorious names. Um, is there a favorite that stands out or uh, an experience that was really kind of, uh, you know, kind of hair raising for you? Well, um, a lot of it has been hair raising. I, uh, I was maybe the first Western journalist into Romania when Ceausescu was overthrown. I was uh, in East Berlin just before the wall came down. Uh, I was in uh, Burundi uh, before we had the, uh, the, the Hutu Tutsi massacres that turned into the Rwanda genocide. So I've had quite a few interesting experiences. Uh, oddly enough, uh, some of the ones that really stand out for me are what I uh, consider to be sort of a sideline, not my main political or investigative reporting. I did a, a few profiles for magazines like Esquire, and I had the chance, for example, to go to France and spend some time with a man named Ira Einhorn, E-I-N-H-O-R-N, who uh, was actually on the run from the United States uh, uh, criminal justice system, and he was accused of having uh, murdered his girlfriend and then secreted her body in a, a trunk in his apartment and continued to live there. And he was interesting because he was kind of a celebrity yeah. prior to this. So, sort of interesting to look him up. And Wow, that's crazy. And before we get into some of the Bush family stuff, I also want to ask you, I know recently you've, you've had some articles come out about the Michael Hastings crash, and which happened in 2013, and you have someone like counter-terror czar Richard Clark basically saying that the crash was consistent with the car cyber attack. Do you think this gives credence to the possibility, um, you know, with the, also the recent car recalls uh, that, that can be prone to being hacked, do you feel like that we're closer to the truth on this and that there was a strong possibility that's what happened? the Hastings? Well, at the uh, website that I run, whowhatwhy.org, we, we keep hammering on this because we cannot see how it is that the media, and when I say the media, I'm not just talking about the so-called corporate or mainstream media, I'm talking about all the media, including uh, um, sort of ideological media to the right, to the left, whatever. None of them, not a one of them seem willing to touch this, and that is the question of, is it possible that a journalist could be assassinated in the United States. Uh, we know that journalists are attacked, jailed, and assassinated all over the world, and it seems that nobody wants to think about the possibility that it could happen here, but as you point out, there's no question uh, that uh, there are some, some issues about the what happened to his car. The backstory for listeners is that Michael Hastings was a uh, uh, was a journalist who had achieved some fame over a fairly short period of time doing uh, an important piece for Rolling Stone where he went to Afghanistan and managed to spend some time with General Stanley McChrystal, the head of the forces there. And in the course of that, uh, McChrystal and his staff, I guess, relaxed to the point where they began making disparaging remarks about the president and vice president of the United States. Though that made it into the article, caused a huge uproar. The president was uh, obligated to fire uh, McChrystal and um, 
uh, Hastings went on to great fame and uh, got all kinds of assignments. And as far as we know, he claimed to be working on the biggest story of his career. Uh, and he seemed to be investigating the new director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He also told his friends that, uh, uh, that the FBI was investigating him. And he told a neighbor that he was, uh, he felt that there was something wrong with his car, that maybe somebody had been tampering with it. And this all was right before uh, he was driving down a straight uh, boulevard in Los Angeles. And uh, in the early hours of the morning, we don't know where he was coming from or going to, but suddenly his car uh, uh, left the street and jumped the median uh, ran into a palm tree, and there was a tremendous explosion. And on our website, whowhatwhy.org, if you just put his name into the search box, you can get some of the footage oh, yeah. that we ran showing the explosion. Uh, the engine was ejected a very long distance. Uh, I've seen different accounts, but it was at least 50 feet, maybe 100 or 150 feet. And we are told privately by people who know a lot about cars and about Mercedes, that that simply should not happen when a car runs into a tree. Um, so there are, there are some very, very real questions, and, and at a minimum, it's just kind of remarkable that, that uh, nobody seems to think it's worth looking into this, oh, and so nobody seems to think that uh, uh, when journalists are doing that kind of work that we ought to take an interest when they meet an untimely demise. Well, especially like that too. I mean, they, they they don't the powers that be, especially that are at that level, don't like uh, a big spotlight shined on them. And I mean, when you when you look at that footage, like you mentioned, Russ, um, of the traffic cameras that picked up the uh, you know the, the the Mercedes going at just such high speeds, it's it's, it's hard to understand why that would happen. He it, wasn't a fast driver, right? And, and and with all the stuff you mentioned about the neighbor and him thinking his car was tampered with, it's pretty staggering. It really is, and, and uh, I mean, this is a theme that we uh, play over and over again on whowhatwhy.org, uh, which is that the stories that don't get told, the stories that people don't hear are so amazing. And you know, I live in New York City, and even here with supposedly some of the most successful, best-educated people in the country, they don't know these stories because they're almost without exception, dependent on, for their information, on a fairly small number of, uh, you know, mediated publications and programs uh, and books, and, and it's all sort of recommended in a kind of a loop. And so uh, these people who, who really are in a position to do something about some of the problems in this country are not even fully aware of them, don't really understand what's going on because again, because they've got these sort of filters in place and they're part of this sort of loop. Um, and, and, and that's something with, with, with uh, stories like Hastings and many of the others that we do, we find that people kind of, if they do see our website, they, they look at us incredulously and they think, well, how come I haven't heard this before? And they don't understand that the reason they haven't heard it because that's the nature of the system. The system sort of suppresses the most disturbing information. It suppresses the kind of things that really would make people question uh, how we live, how our system works, and, and, and would make people, would, would, would kind of radicalize people and, and make them want to generate some more substantive changes. 
Yeah, kind of wake up out of the uh, you know the reality TV uh, news cycle sleep that cool. we're all in, and it's it's interesting because even a, a journalist and, and you know investigative reporter who I respect very much, um, who was a friend of Hastings, Jeremy Scahill, I don't think he's really willing to even go there with this either. Have you have you talked to any other journalists or even people from Hastings family who kind of feel like this thing's fishy, or are they afraid to go there, or do they just they do they not agree that that it's fishy? I'm aware of some people who say that they think it's fishy. Uh, my my sense is that everybody thinks it's fishy. And my sense also is that not a one of those people are willing to go public with that because they fear a kind of uh, harm to their professional reputation. Uh, doors begin to close when you raise those kinds of questions. And, of course, we all know the pejorative term like conspiracy theorist, a very uh, dangerous uh, term that can be affixed to anybody, and as soon as it is, uh, you know that that's the end of opportunity. Um, right. And and so most of us in journalism and in other fields uh, avoid those moments when we could step outside of the consensus and and say something really provocative. We people don't really want to do that. If you look at even the people that that we tend to admire. Uh, in journalism and in other fields, they don't really step very far outside the uh, the mainstream. They 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 may do something. Uh, they may obtain documents or some interview or something where they're out front. Uh, but they they really think long and hard about it, and um, and and they're not going to be doing that on a regular basis because it's just too difficult to live that kind of a life. Yeah, it's it's yeah. You're right about that, and I'm sure you faced a lot of backlash. And I think um, getting into the whole Bush, you know, uh, family here. I think the two most important books about the Bush family, um, George W. Bush and his grandfather and father. Uh, obviously, your book, um, Family of Secrets, which I read a couple years ago, and my jaw just dropped to the floor with with some of the stuff in that book. But also, Fortunate Son by J. H. Hatfield. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but I mean that that whole thing basically basically ruined that guy's life and let him the suicide, you know, that backlash. Yeah, uh, that was a kind of a complicated thing, which would take a whole separate conversation. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, he, he was sort of revealed to be a very problematical individual, and when you have that sort of a background, right. it, it enormously complicates the whole thing, and it makes it difficult to sort out. But uh, certainly, um, there was a lot about the Bush family that I discovered in the course of my five years of research for Family of Secrets that had never come out, and it was really so explosive, uh, so uh, a whole new... Um, interpretation of really American history over the last sort of 50 years that uh, it was quite a, you know, it was a kind of bombshell that the programs initially, they wanted to have me on, talking about the mainstream and, and liberal media programs, and then as they started looking at more, they said, wow, you know, we, we don't even know what to do with this. Uh, because when somebody comes along with a narrative that runs quite contrary to what everybody else has been saying all the time, uh, it's, it's, it's too hard to even absorb it. It's a kind of an implicit 
condemnation of these outlets themselves and the fact that they never even got close to the truth. And so they end up deciding, oh, let's just ignore this and hope it goes away. I, I agree. And, I, you know, I think it's crazy because there's almost a collective amnesia right now. Here we are in 2016. Another Bush is running for the highest office in the land. We have Jeb uh, running for president. You know, what's, what's your take on the implications of another Bush getting in there? And w what kind of things you discover maybe about Jeb during the uh, course of your research? One thing that I think is important to understand about the Bush family, and this is uh, a thread running through Family of Secrets, is that um, they're not just ambitious people. They're a family with a kind of a an outlook and a value system that doesn't really emerge because they're not seen as very ideological people, uh, and they're not in that sense. But they do have a kind of an abiding philosophy about power and about wealth and about what, how the system ought to work and who it ought to benefit. And we don't really understand very much about that, but we've now had uh, the... the uh, uh, Senator Prescott Bush, and then his son, George H.W. Bush, and then his son, George Bush, and now the brother, Jeb, and, and Jeb's son, um, George P. Bush, who's already been elected to the statewide office of Texas. So you're really looking at a remarkable phenomenon. And we don't take the time to try to understand what it means that this family is uh, so active and, and so determined to hold or wield power, um, and, and I think there is a kind of a covert philosophy there. Um, the whole book, Family of Six, is all about that, you know, trying to show in action the uh, philosophy playing out, and it is very much a, a, a one of extreme elitism of a unfriendliness to democracy itself, uh, a sense that certain people are meant to rule and uh, only those people are meant to possess certain information and that the rest of us are, uh, we're essentially, we're expendable, I guess is the way you put it. Um, and, and so when I look at Jeb, what I see is, although he definitely has a different style than his brother, than his father, and his grandfather, uh, I don't know that he is at heart a very different kind of a person. I think he grew up, I, I think you grow up in that family and you absorb those same um, very exclusionary values and that kind of a mindset. And you also are uh, sort of, you apprentice in the dark arts that uh, were so important to George H.W. Bush, and in Family of Secrets, I tell the backstory I discovered to that man and to the fact that why he had been made CIA director in 1976, oh, yeah. that always seemed strange to me. Yeah. I just didn't get it. I uh, couldn't figure out why, uh, as the media told us, a man, a neophyte with no background or experience or knowledge and intelligence would be brought in to run the CIA at the most delicate moment in, its, in, in, in the organization's history when 
for the first time, and, and really the only time, Congress was heavily investigating its role in assassinations and coups, uh, and all kinds of shocking things were coming out. At that very moment, they brought in none other than George H.W. Bush, right. uh, this sort of was he kind of mild-mannered, inarticulate, inexperienced man, and it made no sense to me. And so in my years of research for Family Secrets, I dug into that, and I discovered that he had a whole back history of covert work himself with the CIA for decades prior to being named as a so-called outsider CIA director. And then I looked at the kids, at George uh, W., and now I'm looking at Jeb, and I'm seeing the same thing, that all the kids in the family get sort of uh, made to do certain things, when they're, particularly when they're young, uh, where they sort of get some training in the so-called family business. And to me, it's a little bit like the kids of, you know, in The Godfather or something. You know, you're just told that you're going to have to learn the way it is. And, and I continue to do research on Jeb, and I'm hoping I will be able to publish something on him uh, before the election. And he is very much a part of that. Now, Russ, um, a layman off the street who doesn't only knows peripherally about the Bushes, what are two facts or two things that you would tell them to try and dissuade them from supporting Jeb Bush and buying into having another Bush presidency? Well, I, first of all, it's not my job to, to persuade or de dissuade people to vote any way they want. Um, I, I mean, I think this is one of the problems with journalism is that we've forgotten to uh, have people do their job, and it's become too ideological. That There's a place for that, but that, there's no place in journalism, and to my mind, for that. Uh, and, and as I research him, I find things about him that are commendable, and I find things that aren't, and people can read it and can decide for themselves what course of action they want to take. Uh, I, I will say that uh, uh, certainly uh, with the father, um, I was quite astonished to find the extent to which he was deeply involved with major traumas in our country's history and in Family of Secrets. I have five chapters on the Kennedy assassination and three on Watergate in the case of the Kennedy assassination explaining why it is that George H.W. Bush during an interview claimed he couldn't remember where he was when he heard that Kennedy was shot. That seemed so strange to me and I spent years trying to answer that question and what I found just completely changed uh, my understanding of him and, and really of, Amer of, of America. Um, and uh, the same thing with Watergate, where I had a certain sense of Richard Nixon and Woodward and Bernstein and what that was about, and my uh, open-ended and open-minded research changed my understanding of that. Now, when it comes to Jeb, um, as usual, there is not a lot of deep analysis. People tend not to really try to understand uh, why he wanted to be governor of Florida and why he wants to be president. There doesn't seem to be any will to even ask those kinds of questions. And so people right. sort of debate, you know, was he hardworking? Uh, is he different than his brother? I mean, the answer is yes, he was hardworking. And yes, he is different than his brother in terms of his manner, in terms of his, uh, his uh, intelligence and his, uh, uh, his, his propensity for working instead of shirking <laughs> might be a good bumper sticker there uh but but there is no sense at all of trying to understand what he what he believes and what he stands for uh key bono as they say in the latin who benefits with the things that he supports and i think that uh over time the work that i'm doing and i perhaps the work others are doing will 
provide some more insight into how Jeb Bush himself fits into this construct of a very small number of Americans really predetermining the trajectory of this country for the rest of us. You're absolutely right about that. And Mike and I have a very inflated um, ability to participate in this process being up here in New Hampshire. And um, one thing that Mike was able to ask Jeb about was, um, you know, related to 9-11 in Saudi Arabia. So based on what you dug up and kind of what is known about the Bush family's connections to Saudi Arabia, um, it would be safe to say that the relationship that a President Jeb Bush would have with the kingdom would be very similar to relationships that past Bushes had had. Absolutely. This goes back to a uh, kind of um, very secret and... Um, informal but extremely important agreement that was reached. Um, that was part of the research I did for Family Secrets, and I would like to do more on it, but I could see the outlines of an agreement being reached in the early 70s that um, essentially the Saudi royal family would be protected, would be aided, and would be essentially guaranteed that they would be able to survive uh, as a uh, dictatorship and kleptocracy in Saudi Arabia, uh, and in return they would be cooperative and supportive and play an important financial role in aiding the kinds of um, projects that this extended fraternity that has inhabited the intelligence world and the banking world and the oil world um, seek to continue in the United States and elsewhere in the world, and so there was, an, uh, there, was there appears to have been an agreement reached, um, and we see uh, ever since then that the Saudi royal family, no matter uh, how other countries modernize and change, manage to keep their grip on power, and this is this very, very mutually beneficial relationship that I guess on some uh, hand, you could argue, has benefited the public in terms of maybe the stability of uh, fuel supplies and what have you. But at the same time, there's been a tremendous cost for the people of Saudi Arabia and, and I think the people of the Middle East and, and really the people in the whole world and also has affected things like the pace at which we're willing to deal with climate change, embrace alternative energies and so on. There are tremendous consequences of this still secret relationship that we understand so little about. Right. I mean, even when, um, you know, H.W. was vice president, from what I understand, uh, W. Bush was part of an energy company called uh, Harkin Energy and essentially was bailed out by one of Osama bin Laden's brothers. Um, was that in your book as well, or do you have any insight on that? I, I have a whole chapter in Family of Secrets about the uh, about Harkin Energy, and I spent a long time researching it. It's a fascinating vessel because, as best as I can tell, it was a... Uh, was an, an operation where people were going in and taking shells of companies and then turning them into uh, vehicles for clandestine intelligence projects around the world that, again, benefit these same interests. And what I found so interesting about, uh, about Harkin was that on the board or involved as investors and so forth, you found Saudis, you found people connected to the dictator Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines, uh, you found people connected to dictators in Latin America, uh, you found these strands of so many different things 
all kind of coming together there, Wall Street people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and somehow they had been able to assemble all of these people. Um, I even found a, 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 you know, kind of a, a liberal icon, George Soros, investing in the company. I found Harvard University putting a huge amount of its endowment into this ex- seemingly very, very risky, unprofitable enterprise, at least on paper. And uh, there were there were uh, blocks everywhere when I tried to find out what that was really about. And Harvard was able to never really answer. And even with Family of Secrets and even with presenting these things to papers like the Boston Globe, uh, where they should have presumably, since Harvard's in their backyard, been interested in investigating this, it was just total silence everywhere. It's just Again, that's that theme that we're bringing out here in this conversation. Same thing again and again and again. The truth is just too hard for the public to take, these overseers believe, and they have the control, and they're able to make sure that the things we're talking about are really heard only by a very small audience. Right, and I wanted to touch base on Richard Nixon, and um, it might have been your research or somewhere similar talking about Prescott Bush really running and managing and mentoring Richard Nixon in his early days, and then leading up to him being vice president for eight years, and then you hear about um, close aides to Richard Nixon saying whenever he referred to that Bay of Pigs thing, he was actually talking about the Kennedy assassination. So Yeah, um, Family of Secrets has a large section on the Bush family relationship with Nixon. Right. That was original research. I uh, got to that by asking questions. I couldn't figure out why uh, Nixon, who really didn't have that many friends, was so determined to help a young George H.W. Bush with opportunities, with job opportunities for things he really wasn't particularly qualified for. And I couldn't figure it out, and I was like, why does Nixon do this? And Nixon didn't seem to want to even discuss it candidly with his own people as to why he was doing it, but he seemed to feel obligated. And so uh, along with all the other research I did for Family of Secrets, I spent uh, a couple of years digging into this and finally discovering that there was a backstory that uh, I don't want to spoil it. I love people to read the book. It's a long and, uh, and, yes. and uh, intricate book. It's a must read. Uh, Everybody read the book. investing the time in. <laughs> yes. But in a nutshell, there was a secret back relationship between Richard Nixon Uh, Prescott Bush and these um, little understood Wall Street elements uh, that really were right at the beginning of Nixon's political career and involved a kind of an obligation that he had to these more powerful and wealthier interests. More connected people. And is it true, Russ, that Richard Nixon knew about Jack Ruby spying on communists on behalf of Congress? Is Is that accurate? Um, I wasn't able to finish my research on that to the point where I'm satisfied. And I just want to say, people are always sending me things that they see on the Internet and telling me, hey, this is the way it goes because I read this on the Internet. And I'm always appalled by that because... You know, I think people don't understand that the Internet is like a bathroom wall, you know. <laughs> Anybody can write anything on it, and it does not make it true. It all smells like shit, And we've too. got to uh, stop sort of infantilizing ourselves and the conversation by not having any kind of due diligence. I mean, you're, you wouldn't hire a, a babysitter just randomly or, 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 or somebody to work for your business without checking them out. And don't just assume that some random thing on the Internet is true. And so 
my comment about uh, Jack Ruby would be that the, some of the things I've looked at indicate a high probability that Ruby was, uh, among other things, some kind of an informant to, uh, to the House committee uh, with which Richard Nixon was involved, but I think more research needs to be done. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, I'm, I've, uh, that's something that, that I've looked into for several years, too. I mean, I, I don't automatically, you know, disclaimer here, I don't automatically believe anything I just read on the internet either, but I just wanted to get your insight on that because that, that would be very interesting because uh, the Warren Commission claimed that there was no connection to the mafia and there was no prior connection um, to, you know, smuggling guns to Cuba or communism involving Jack Ruby or Jack Rubenstein, as he was known um, before he became Jack Ruby. Yeah, I mean... Uh... All of the evidence that we've been able to collect in the ensuing years are that the Warren Commission was wrong, uh, largely by design, but wrong about almost all of those things. And there's no question at all that Jack Ruby was a mob figure, was very well connected with, uh, uh, with the mob hierarchy in many, many ways, that he was known to them, that he was known, well known to law enforcement, that he was a somewhat low-level, but extremely well-connected figure into the Dallas Police Department and the FBI and the CIA and all of these other circles. Uh, oil, some of the oil people knew who he was. He was really uh, an incredibly interesting figure at the center of a particular spider's web. And that alone, if enough research is done on it, and, and I continue to investigate and research yeah. the Kennedy assassination and hope there will be another book in me at some point in the not-too-distant future, but just that you, you take one figure like Jack Ruby and you can begin to unravel the whole story. And of course, there are many other figures in, in the oh, Kennedy story, so each many. of whom properly investigated begin to shed uh, shine a tremendous light on all of this. George DeMorenshill. One of Poppy Bush's friends. George DeMorenschild, the uh, uh, close friend of Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, and as I discovered, of course, my research, a, a lifelong friend of George H.W. Bush linked up all of these people, too. Um, he seems to have known Jack Ruby. I mean, it was, a, it was kind of a small family, you might say, <laughs> that, and, and remarkable that, that uh, the public at large doesn't know any of this because the right. authors and the books the narratives and the theories that get promoted about the Kennedy assassination, just like everything else, uh, are essentially false. Russ, and I think are knowingly false. What do you um, what do you make of E. Howard Hunt's deathbed confession about being involved in the assassination and being a bench warmer and giving his propensity to be a liar? I mean, what's your take on E. Howard Hunt's role and was was he involved? Um, like all these other things, I. I'm afraid I'm going to have to punt because I don't know. Um, this so-called confession is sort of murky. Um, it was promoted by a uh, by his son, who seems to have had his own reasons for doing that. Um, and as you say, uh, uh, Hunt was a very tricky fellow. Right. I mean, lies were part of the fabric of his entire life. His career. I don't. I think there's something there. Uh, I, I think agree. it needs more study, and it needs to be carefully tested and measured and uh, sort of threaded in with other pieces of this narrative. Now, uh, during your research into the Bush family, did you ever get to talk to any of the Bush family, or did you ever hear from any of them? Um, 
they don't talk to people like me. Um, <laughs> hey, they, you're New York they Times. Every they can to avoid us. And when I say people like me, I can't really speak about anybody else, but I can tell you that I certainly requested interviews with them. They studiously avoided me. They either didn't answer or, in one case, I got a response saying that uh, the former president of uh, Bush 41 was unfortunately too busy to talk to me. Right. They all knew what I was, he was doing. too busy skydiving were reporting back constantly, so they were certainly able to monitor what I was doing. And I think their sense is that, that they've got the upper hand, that the uh, American establishment, including notably the media and academia, are so unwilling to go into any of these things that they don't really have to worry about people like me. Right. And, and like Eric was saying earlier, um, with the New Hampshire primary, uh, we have a lot of opportunities to be able to talk to the candidates, including Jeb Bush. And um, a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to ask Jeb Bush a question in front of seven major media outlets, 200 people and other people recording the event um, about what happened about 24 hours after the 9-11 attacks. There were law enforcement officials in Sarasota who said that a C-130 cargo plane showed up and confiscated all the flight school records pertaining to three of the 9-11 hijacker pilots. Now, I think I'm the first person to ever actually ask Jeb Bush this question in public, maybe even ever, perhaps. And this is based on um, investigative reporter Daniel Hopsicker's work. Um, are you familiar with any of his work and, and, and this story about the... Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, I mean, I've tried to run some of those things down. Um, I think there's, there's still some questions as to exactly what these things mean and how reliable the eyewitnesses are. But what, what, did, what did he say to you when you presented that? Well, I, I also included the, the sergeant's name in Florida, Marty Trainer, um, which I haven't, I haven't been able to speak to him, but Daniel Hopsker said that he did, and he said that Jeb was on this C-130. They took all the files, they put it onto a, a rider truck and put it right onto the plane and flew to Washington. So I just asked this question to Jeb, and you can watch the footage. It's on our Facebook page, and I'll send it to you. Um, but he, as soon as I mentioned the name Wally Hilliard, which was an old business associate of his, he kind of his face kind of dropped, and he tried to shirk the question and get laugh it off. He laughed at me and had the audience laugh at me, basically, um, you know, and make me look like I was crazy or I was asking a weird question. And that's exactly what he said. He said that was a weird question. And after I asked the question, after the event, I went up to him to, uh, you know, basically shake his hand and just polite. I was very polite the whole time. Um, and I said, uh, thanks for clearing that up for me, Governor Bush. And he said, well, where did you get that information from? And I told him about Daniel Hopsicker's work, um, Welcome to Terrorland, Mohammed Atta, and the 9-11 cover-up in Florida, which was the basis of a two-year investigation that Hopsicker did down there. And he said, well, that's interesting, but your question's bunk. So that was uh, that's the response I got from him. I, I'm, I'm sure they're aware of all of those things. Um, and... Uh... Look, you know, there are a whole bunch of fascinating pieces out there. Um, where they lead has yet to be determined, but uh, I think it's interesting that you were able to at least ask the question. Do you have video of that? I do, yeah. I have a video. It's on our Facebook page, and, and um, you know, we'll put it up after tonight, and I'll be sure to send you the link to it. But um, it was interesting because there were a lot of fluff questions asked of, of Governor Bush. And I thought it was a great opportunity to ask a real question. And, you know, next time I see him, I might want to ask him about his involvement in freeing the convicted terrorist Orlando Bosch. You know, you familiar with that story? Sure. You know, I think, I think there's something there with that, too. Have you, have you been able to 
kind of look into that or talk to any leads on that story? No, I mean, I think it, if, if I can just keep it a little bit general, you might assume that I'm looking into all of the angles uh, yeah. uh, about him because that's what you do when you try to do a thorough job in, in profiling somebody. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, though, because, you know, he was governor from, I think, what, 98 or 99 till 2007? Maybe 99 to 2007. And, um, you know, Wally Hilliard was the financier of Huffman Aviation, where Marwan El-Shehi, Muhammad Atta, and Zia Jara all trained. They showed up to this flight school run by a Dutch national named Rudy Deckers, um, who had previously been bankrupt, had no money, couldn't even afford to pay for fuel. And, you know, the same time Muhammad Atta shows up in 2000, gets this flight school going, uh, financed by Wally Hilliard, who's later busted in a huge heroin uh, oh yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm familiar with all of that. So you know, I, I, you know, I'm not saying like I, I'm not trying to come across and say, oh, this is exactly what happened. But I think, like you were saying, there's certainly some interesting questions to arise from that. So, um, and uh, not as far as yeah, I look, I mean, I mean, the, the, I think the way to understand this is that um, entities like the Central Intelligence Agency need a vast network of front companies and. Uh, people who can do things for them on the basis of plausible deniability. Uh, a lot of these characters are ne'er-do-wells. They're people who themselves have uh, criminal records or shady business or financial practices. And there's a reason for that. Uh, a, because that's the kind of person who's willing to do these sorts of projects, no questions asked, as long as they get paid. Uh, and also, uh, if they were ever to go public and to talk about what they did, they would be instantly discredited because people would say, well, he's a liar, he's a, you know, ex-convict, uh, this person is a deadbeat, and so forth. So this is the way that these things work, and there are cases of this sort everywhere. And it gets complicated because uh, uh, you you have these sorts of coincidences, or you have these things that are more than coincidences, uh, and then you end up having to go down all these different alleys and sort all of these things out. In other words, how much of of, of, of the things that these people were doing with their flight schools and other things were right. related to uh, intelligence operations? Probably, or perhaps some of them, and some of them were not. Um, and these agencies do not in any way attempt to be their brother's keeper. In other words, they're not uh, <laughs> right, right. in any way limiting. I mean, the, the, the story of the savings and loan scandals was, oh, yeah. was, was in part that, that, that uh, people and entities that were willing to cooperate with the funding of or laundering of money to the Contras were also permitted to do other things, or at least they nobody said, don't do those things. And these banks... Uh, could make all kinds of crazy, risky investments and uh, savings and loans and, and collapse, leaving uh, their, their depositors and the public holding the bag, and, and, and that was okay. That was not a matter of concern to these agencies. Yeah, and uh, kind of touching on a different topic, but another area of controversy and obviously different narratives being um, you know, thrown out there by different entities, the, uh, the bin Laden raid in Pakistan um, Cy Hirsch did a pretty epic piece about that. What, what's your take on the Bin Laden raid? Do you think Cy Hirsch um, was on to something? Um, Cy and I are friendly, and I have a great deal of respect for him. 
Um, we have a different story about that on whowhatwhy.org. Okay. And if you go to the search box and you just type in, uh, well, you could type in uh, uh, probably the word abatabad, A-B-B-O-T-T-A-B-A-D, abatabad, <laughs> that is where the raid took place. Uh, we were very early, I think, one of the first news organizations to express skepticism about the official account of what took place there. Um, and Sai's uh, narrative is a more limited one, is that uh, uh, he says that the raid uh, did take place and that, uh, uh, you know, in other words, he's, he's confirming the official story except to say that uh, the, the, the backstory of what the Pakistanis did or did not know was different than we were told. Right. Our take is much different, is that we find the whole story uh, problematical. And uh, there is a long history of the public being told partially or completely false stories for other reasons. Uh, we, we don't know uh, what the real story is, but a lot of what we've been told is troubling to us. The, uh, the claims that bin Laden um, uh, was, you know, the, the shifting narrative of what happened, that first that he was shot while he had a weapon, then later that he didn't have a weapon, then it turned out that maybe he was completely unarmed and basically just uh, executed. Um, the claim that the president and vice president and just secretary of state and all the others were watching this thing on camera, and then supposedly the cameras went out at the crucial moment, the leaked uh, story of what happened by supposedly one of the members of the Navy SEALs team who conveniently uh, himself says that he was not present when they uh, got bin Laden. Uh, the strange story of the helicopter crash, which uh, was a very bad helicopter crash there, and yet supposedly we're told that everybody in that plane was fine, that nobody was injured. The claim that, uh, uh, that they allowed the SEALs to decide whether to capture this man or not, which is absolutely unfathomable that the most desirable um, uh, subject of interrogation in the world, uh, that you would not make a, a major effort to capture him alive yeah, that's and to that. interrogate him, and instead you would leave it to these low-level people to decide what to do with him. The idea that you would uh, throw his body into the ocean um, rather than keep it in a secret location for forensic or other purposes, uh, then that you would do it so quickly as they claim to have done, and that you would do it supposedly because the Saudis suggested that you do that. I mean, it's ludicrous. On uh, If you examine these kinds of things on a, on a basis of logic and uh, past behavior, uh, none of that story really makes much sense, and so we're troubled by all of that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a lot of omissions and certainly questions about the whole narrative and it's only it's been just over four years and um you know even if we were shown footage or photographs you'd still have people decrying that they were faked but you know we we were shown footage and photographs of uday and kusay hussein as well as saddam hussein um being actually being executed and then and then you know after the fact so i don't think that argument holds much water that it would incite some kind of uprising across the world so um, I certainly would call for the release of those photographs and uh, basically more information pertaining to, you know, how long we knew Bin Laden was in Pakistan, how long the ISI knew he was there, um, and just just more, just a little bit more to kind of give the 9-11 family members as well as the American public at large 
some closure and some evidence about what happened. Yeah, and, you know, there's been absolutely no will on the part of the media. Again, I keep coming back to that theme. Mm -hmm. I mean, where's the media? Where's any of the media, including the supposedly uh, more gutsy, edgy, uh, newer you know, websites? Where are any of them yeah. in holding these people accountable? I mean, they all clamor and they all start yelling about some little gossipy scandal. But yeah. when it comes to giant matters like this, they, they, they can't seem to think of a question. They cower. They cower, and it's hard to discredit a guy like you, Russ, because you do have the credentials and you have that mainstream background. You've been around for such a long time. Um, I applaud you for raising these real issues and real questions. I mean, what was it that kind of made you decide, I'm, I'm going to start really looking at things and really talking about it truthfully and not just towing an official line? Uh, you know, I, I never really had a lot of patience for doing things the conventional way. When I first started out as a freelancer, going to these places in other countries, and I almost immediately saw the pack, you know, the journalism pack and these sort of smug, big name people from big name organizations uh, looking for the comfortable route and all sort of watching each other and making sure that their stories all kind of conformed. Um, and, and so very early on I said, you know, there's something wrong with all of this. I mean, this is not the right way to do good journalism. And I think that was always in the back of my mind when I worked for mainstream news organizations, the notion that I too understood that I had to restrain myself, um, censor myself to some extent, and not let, not follow my best instincts wherever the story went. And so this always bothered me, and that is the reason that I finally just left the more traditional journalism and, and founded what became Who, What, Why. Yeah, no, that, that, that's great. Uh, you know, you had a, I don't want to say a crisis of conscience, but I mean, you, you were obviously intelligent enough and you had the backbone to go out there and kind of dig up these stories um, that I think are like an 800-pound elephant in the room for everyone else. And one of them that I was looking at from your archives was, I think, from 1999, and it was the story about Stanley Glickman um, possibly being poisoned with LSD um, and then having a very difficult, you know, uh, rest of his life. Is, is there any update on that story or any insight you want to... Yeah, I mean, we re-ran that on Who, What, Why, and if you go to the site and you put uh, MK Ultra, M-K-U-L-T-R-A, or Glickman, G-L-I-C-K-M-A-N, into the search box, you can read that story. That was uh, originally commissioned by the New York Times Magazine. It was my idea, and it was uh, about a trial where the family of this at the time, young man, uh, who was somehow seemingly poisoned and had his mind destroyed, uh, sued the U.S. government and alleged that he had been a guinea pig in this MK Ultra mind control experimentation, a program that was uh, made known to the public in the course of hearings during that very turbulent 1970s period. So we know that there was MKUltra. We know that they were doing such experiments. And uh, the fact that they were willing to take an American citizen, a talented young artist, and ruin his life, um, I think it tells you something about the contempt that these people have for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, one of the figures in that story, Dr. Gottlieb, that guy's fucking evil. That dude's evil. You know? You know, um, 
every society has people, and there are a lot in the medical profession and the psychological profession. We saw that with the with the uh, torture situation, where they were willing to completely bend the moral and ethical strictures and do whatever uh, they were being asked to do. This is the, the this this sense that um, following orders uh, is okay. Uh, I mean, runs through so many institutions, the military, the intelligence sector, it runs, it runs through much of our whole society, uh, where so many of us do things in our day-to-day lives that we know are wrong in the course of our job, but, uh, hey, we have to keep our job, you know? And yeah. so how evil was, was, uh, uh, Sidney Gottlieb? I mean, I suppose he was evil enough, but, uh, you know, when it came down to when he was asked about these things, he, he shrugged like Eichmann and he said, I was a, you know, I was a guy who had a job and they told me what to do and I did it. I know he tried to have a little bit of, you know, tried to repent by working in an AIDS hospice towards the end of his life. But, you know, Mark Lane connects him to the, you know, Kennedy assassination, to overseeing the systemic torture of people in Vietnam. Um, It's just, I don't know how these people function. I mean, it's, I don't know. The banality of evil is what you're talking about, Russ. Yep, well, Anna Arendt uh, had some important things to say on it, and uh, at least she got something of a uh, hearing nowadays when you try to talk about it there really isn't too much interest yeah yeah well if you put a pair of kardashian butt cheeks on it maybe there'll be interest <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. uh so what are you working on now russ i know you got the website going and i mean you're appearing all over you know different uh i, I think i've seen you on rt america and uh you know um other organizations and news channels what's uh you mentioned you might be working on a new book what do you uh what do you got in the pipeline now you might want to share with us well, I'm working on lots of different things. I mean, I'm certainly taking a look at Jeb. I'm, I'm continuing to look at the Kennedy assassination, which I think is not just ancient history, but no. I, I think that solving these, these sort of cold cases, the big cold cases, are absolutely crucial in sort of being a roto-rooter for the clogged pipes of democracy. So I'm okay. going to continue doing those looks way back at major traumatic events. I'm going to continue looking at at people like Jeb. I'm going to continue looking at things like the Boston Marathon bombing that we've done so much work on at Who Are Why. We're excited and we're hopeful and, uh, you know, the site is growing and more people are learning about it. uh, Who But Why is a non-profit. We don't even take ads. We we fund it entirely by uh, donations from our readers, um, and also with the help of, uh, to some extent, of volunteers, uh, and so it's an exciting time where we're 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 sort of trying to reinvent the whole system as we go, and 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 I'm looking forward to uh, the rest of the year being a very lively time, and and on into 2016. Well, beautiful. That's great, Russ. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a very insightful conversation, and we really appreciate your time and. Um, you know, we hope to speak to you down the road, and uh, we'll continue watching your work. Absolutely, and uh, feel free to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter, and uh, subscribe to our newsletter on whoawhy.org. Perfect. Have a great night, Russ. We'll talk to you later. You too. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Russ Baker. I thought that was a pretty interesting conversation. Great interview. The author of Family of Secrets, all about the Bush dynasty, and he's been in the game since probably the 80s. Um, it's lonely being where he is, man. You know, when you're yeah. actually hip to things and you actually look at things with, without um, being afraid of what other other people think of you and 
cutting through the bullshit. So yeah, you I get chastised. Really applaud a guy like Russ Baker. And, yeah, uh, that was yeah. He was great uh, to talk to him and check check out his work. This has been another episode of Jackman Radio, episode twenty, a milestone of sorts. We hope you guys have enjoyed it. As always, you can find us on Facebook under Jackman Radio, on Twitter at Jackman Radio, and to listen to the podcast, if you don't have iTunes, it's jackmanradio.podbean.com. Thanks for listening, and have a great night. Yeah.